Thomas Hobbes was born to terror. His mother had gone into premature labor upon hearing that the Spanish Armada was about to attack England. My mother, Hobbes wrote many years later, gave birth to twins, myself and fear. Unquote. Leviathan, the book in which he famously asserts that prehistoric life was solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short, unquote, was composed in Paris, where he was hiding from enemies he'd been he'd made rather by supporting the crown in the English Civil War. The book was nearly abandoned when he was taken with a near-fatal illness that left him at death's door for six months. Upon publication of Leviathan in France, Hobbes' life was now being threatened by his fellow exiles, who were offended by the anti-Catholicism expressed in the book. He fled back across the channel to England, begging the mercy of those he'd escaped eleven years earlier. Though he was permitted to stay, publication of his book was prohibited. The church banned it. Oxford University banned it and burned it. Writing of Hobbes' world, cultural historian Mark Lila describes, quote, Christians addled by apocalyptic dreams who hunted and killed Christians with a maniacal fury they had once reserved it for Muslims, Jews, and heretics. It was madness. Unquote. Hobbes took the madness of his age, considered it normal, and projected it back into prehistoric epochs of which he knew next to nothing. What Hobbes called quote-unquote human nature was a projection of 17th century Europe where life for most was rough, to put it mildly. Though it has persisted for centuries, Hobbes' dark fantasy of prehistoric human life is as valid as grand, conclu- grand conclusions about Siberian wolves based on observations of stray dogs in Tijuana. To be fair, Malthus, Hobbes, and Darwin were constrained by the lack of actual data. To his enormous credit, Darwin recognized this and tried hard to address it, spending his entire adult life collecting specimens, taking copious notes, and corresponding with anyone who could provide him with useful information. But it wasn't enough. The necessary facts wouldn't be revealed for many decades. But now we have them. Scientists have learned to read ancient bones and teeth, to carbon date the ash of Pleistocene fires, to trace the drift of the mitochondrial DNA of our ancestors, and the information they've uncovered resoundingly refutes the vision of prehistory prehistory Hobbes and Malthus conjured and Darwin swallowed whole. Poor pitiful me. Quote, 
We are enriched not by what we possess, but by what we can do without. Unquote. Immanuel Kant. If George Orwell was correct that, quote, those who control the past control the future, unquote, what of those who control the distant past? Prior to the population increases associated with agriculture, most of the world was a vast, empty place in terms of human population. But the desperate overcrowding imagined by Hobbes, Malthus, and Darwin is still deeply embedded in evolutionary theory and repeated like a mantra, facts be damned. For example, in his recent essay entitled Why War, philosopher David Livingston, rather David Livingstone Smith, projects the Malthusian panorama in all its mistaken despair. Quote, Competition for limited resources is the engine of evolutionary change, he writes. Any population that reproduces without inhibition will eventually outstrip the resources upon which it depends, and as numbers swell, individuals will have no alternative but to compete more and more desperately for dwindling resources. Those who can secure them will flourish, and those who cannot will die. Unquote. True, as far as it goes, but it doesn't go very far, because Smith forgets that our ancestors were the original rambling men and women, nomads who rarely stopped walking for more than a few days at a stretch. Walking away is what they did best. Why assume they would have stuck around to struggle desperately in an overpopulated area with depleted resources when they could simply walk up the beach as they'd been doing for uncounted generations? And prehistoric human beings never reproduced without inhibition, like rabbits. Far from it. In fact, Prehistoric world population growth is estimated to have been well below 0.001% per year throughout prehistory. Hardly the population bomb Malthus assumed. Basic human reproductive biology in a foraging context made rapid population growth unlikely, if not impossible. Women rarely conceive while breastfeeding and without milk from domesticated animals, hunter-gatherer women typically breastfed each child for five or six years. Furthermore, the demands of a mobile hunter-gatherer lifestyle make carrying more than one small child at a time unreasonable for a mother, even assuming lots of help from others. Finally, low body fat levels result in much later menarche, for hunter-gatherer females than for their post-agricultural sisters. Most foragers don't start ovulating until their late teens, resulting in a shorter reproductive life. Hobbes, Malthus, and Darwin were themselves surrounded by the desperate effects of population saturation, rampant infectious disease, ceaseless war, Machiavellian struggles for power. The prehistoric world, however, was sparsely populated where it was po- rather where it was populated at all. Other than isolated pockets surrounded by desert, 
or islands like Papua New Guinea, the prehistoric world was almost all open frontier. Most scholars believe that our ancestors were just setting out from Africa about 50,000 years ago, entering Europe five or 10,000 years later. The first human footprints probably weren't left in North America soil, rather on North American soil until about 12,000 years ago. During the many millennia before agriculture, the entire number of Homo sapiens on the planet probably never surpassed a million people and certainly never approached the current population of Chicago. Furthermore, recently obtained DNA analyses suggest several population bottlenecks caused by environmental rather by environmental catastrophes reduced our species to just a few thousand individuals as recently as 70,000 years ago. Ours is a very young species. Few of our ancestors faced the unrelenting scarcity generated selective pressures envisioned by Hobbes, Malthus, and Darwin. The ancestral human journey did not, by and large, take place in a world already saturated with our kind, fighting over scraps. Rather, the route taken by the bulk of our ancestors led through a long series of ecosystems with nothing quite like us already there. Like the Burmese pythons recently set loose in the Everglades, cane toads spreading unchecked across Australia, or the timber wolves recently reintroduced to Yellowstone, our ancestors were generally an entering an open ecological niche. When Hobbes wrote that, quote, man to man is an errant wolf, unquote, he was unaware of just how cooperative and communicative wolves can be if there's enough food for everyone. Individuals and species spreading into rich new ecosystems aren't locked in a struggle to the death against one another. Until the niche is saturated, such interspecies conflict over food is counterproductive and needless. We've already shown that even in a largely empty world, the social lives of foragers were anything but solitary. But Hobbes also claimed prehistoric life was poor, and Malthus believed poverty to be eternal and inescapable. Yet most foragers don't believe themselves to be impoverished, and there's every indication that life wasn't generally much of a struggle for our fire-controlling, highly intelligent ancestors bound together in a cooperative bands. To be sure, occasional catastrophes such as droughts, climatic shifts, and volcanic eruptions were devastating, but most of our ancestors lived in a largely unpopulated world, chock full of food. For hundreds of thousands of generations, the omniverse dilemma facing our ancestors lay in choosing among many culinary options. Plants eat soil, deer eat plants, cougars eat deer, but people can do and eat almost anything, including cougars, deer, plants, and yes, even soil.